Hello everyone, I am Brennan Sahajan and I attend bar at Washington State's best beer bar, the Manitou Tap House. I decided to make a podcast because the regular customers who come in are the most eclectic group of people I have ever met. And I want all of you to know the perspective and stories from the people from my bar. My next guest is a professor of religious studies at Gonzaga University. Tying film into his teaching makes him very unique. Multiple times published, he's a great author, and in his book, Profane Parables, I love what he signed for me, Live Fully Before You Die. Please enjoy Matt Ringe. We are recording. Um, I First thing I'd like to say is thank you for coming, because mm-hmm. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Especially in this like busy, grading time that is, I know, valuable. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, you're welcome. <clears throat> and now that you put your notes away on the questions, yeah, <laughs> try to memorize them. Uh, yeah, let's is get this going to pick me up loud enough? Oh, loud and clear. Oh, okay, great. Um, who are you, and <laughs> what led you to be that person? That's, I mean, I love this question you because everybody thinks of it differently, right? Yeah, and so. This is the main way that I kind of... I think about it in two ways, or three ways. One is the kind of person I want to be, which is a person who is basically good in terms of being good and doing good. Okay. And what I mean by that is basically trying to love people and make a difference in the lives of people that's... Uh, that enhances their livelihood or their capacity to love or their capacity to receive love. So that's like a real general kind of thing. Yeah. And then another... very noble. It's a noble aspiration. You know, I think the gap between that aspiration and my reality is significant. Um, The other way I think about that is in in relational terms... So I think of myself as a dad, mm-hmm. um, primarily as a brother, a son, a friend, um, and then up until relatively recently as a husband. And so that's been a uh, letting go of that identity as a husband has been really difficult because it's been such a part of my life for so long. For how long? Um, for 20 years. Because uh, we were married in 99, mm-hmm. and then the divorce officially was finalized in 2019. And, and so I think about um, my identity as a husband and a father was really kind of vital to me mm-hmm. and central, and the, the dad thing still is. And so I think about the kind of dad I want to be, the kind of dad I am, the gap between those two things. Um, and that can produce in me uh, either joy when I feel like I'm doing that well or a sense of um, sadness, depression when I feel like I'm not doing that well. Um, and then I think in, in terms of um, what I do for a job, which is uh, teach mostly and write a bit, mm-hmm. in which I'm trying to 
think basically introduce people to the transformative power of stories or the potential power of stories to transform them. So interesting. Yeah. So that's who who I, I am, and then what led me to that. Well, or I, I yeah. I kind of want I kind of want you to dig a little deeper. Okay. Because <clears throat> I mean I I think that all of your answers are awesome. I certainly hope so. Well, they are, but you you have only been these things for a pretty limited amount of time, and I think there's a lot more of your life when you're still you. Right. Before these other things? Yeah. I mean, maybe not being a son or a brother. Yeah. Um, and and I I, th I think those are, are good generic answers, mm -hmm. but I don't... I, uh, You're not satisfied. No, I'm no. really not, because <laughs> the person inside your head that talks to you, that, like, that you talk oh. to, that you oh. keep going, that's okay. that not what you're thinking in your head. You're like, being a good son today, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think there's way more. Yes, there, well, there's a lot more uh, uh, that remains to be excavated in terms of the depths. Yeah, you're right. Sure. So um, I do think something that's um, a part of me and that has been for a while is a, a kind of I don't know if it's a compulsion, that might be too strong a word, but a, a drive mm -hmm. or a need to succeed or, and or to perform well. Um, I completely understand that. In um, a variety of areas. So uh, it happens relationally with my role as a dad. It happens with my job. It happens with my writing and publishing, mm -hmm. and it even happens with various hobbies that I get into, like acting. Mm -hmm. And it becomes really easy for me to evaluate my um, status based on my success or performance in these various areas. Sure. Yeah. Um, Completely relate to that, and, and I. Um, for me, it goes even deeper than that. Or the reason that I'm trying to perform or be successful in whatever the endeavor is is because I just have deep down inside of me this fear of what other people think of me. Right. And and so I, I sadly feel like that my my whole life is is driven by this fear, and how to avoid it. <clears throat> right. In a sense, you know. And um, I mean, I I only feel that I've kind of figured that out about myself in the last couple of years. And and how did you do that? Uh, I had some really a really hard time that exposed like real the roots of who I was and uh, what my real motivations were and and it and it shocked me to my core kind of, uh, you know, people, people call it hitting the rock bottom. Yeah. I, I was in a real bad situation, and um, it got very ugly, and I <clears throat> I had to look inside myself in order to 
make things possibly right, you know? Yeah. And from that, um, just being more introspective, being more open to new ideas and not, um, not following my old traditional values, religious beliefs and things, um, I come, I, I, I've come to find out that I, I, that was only a part of me and who I really need to be is something else and something more dedicated and, uh, like what you're saying, like to be, to strive to be this good father and, or good husband and or whatever, um, I was too self-centered and mm. um, living in like an alternate reality inside my head instead of what was in front of me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think the, um, the, the quest for acceptance is in a lot of ways underneath or behind or fueling the um, kind of drive that I can feel towards performing or succeeding mm-hmm. because of thinking that if I can do X, Y, or Z really well, then that will lead to some kind of welcoming acceptance by peers, by other people. And, and I think that there's a kind of deep desire for a sense of belonging oh yeah that I think um, I think the sad part is that underneath all of it it is a, a a fear or worry that that belonging or acceptance I won't find it just by being me yeah that that just by being me is not enough it's not sufficient, it's deficient. Yeah. And so if I'm able to succeed, perform, then that will somehow hopefully be enough. Sure. But <clears throat> the thing that I uh, often find is that it's, I'm always kind of looking for the next thing to succeed at or perform well at. or So it's almost a a drive that is perpetual, um, that kind of doesn't end. So, wow. Well, what led you to be that? Yeah. So I don't know because here's what's fascinating to me, uh, is that my dad was someone who, what all the time growing up, um, told me. And this felt like it was totally authentic from him. Matt, I love you. I'm proud of you no matter what. As long as you try. So I never felt pressure to, to get certain grades or to perform at a certain level from him. So... So you made it up in nice. So <laughs> there's, there's a really powerful internalized force and... I'm not sure where it comes from. Although, if I reflect on it, I do know. Would you write in your notes? What? Would you write in your notes? None of this is in my notes, man. Oh. My notes were, you know, you told me all my answers were superficial and not <laughs> deep enough. So that's what my notes were. Okay. Well, so now I'm, I'm trying to in the bag. go deeper. <laughs> um, but I think 
when I look back at my experience in elementary school, junior high, and high school, up until late high school, I was socially always kind of on the periphery, like on the margins, and feeling like I was kind of an outsider, mm -hmm. wanting to be more of an insider in terms of having like more friends, more acceptance. Sure. And so I think that lack of what felt like peer social acceptance, belonging, might have somehow fed this thing within me where I thought, well, I can get that if I'm able to do X, Y, and Z, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then what's weird too is that in later high school, I ended up getting really involved in my youth group at church, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I found there that I that felt really healthy and still does to me today is a sense of of being accepted um, for who I am without any performance. Without any success. You felt that in your youth group? Well, <laughs> from, 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 hold on, hold on, from my youth pastor mm. and from a couple of adults. Sure. And, and I think feeling it from them helped me feel like God's acceptance of me was also real. Mm. Or, or it made it easier to believe in God accepting me for who I was because I had the experience of these people doing it Personal, for me. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. but what's, what's interesting is that that obviously like wasn't enough or hasn't been enough, I think, for me to quell this deep drive to, you know, sure. perform, succeed, etc. Awesome. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think those were very good better better than the first oh yeah wait, see wait. see what i'm doing now yes i'm trying to succeed yes, trying to perform <laughs> trying to measure up because <laughs> i did it the first time <laughs> wow you, you just, we're bringing it full circle you, proved it. Yeah, that you know was, that was beautiful. this is like a meta you know level commentary yeah. on yeah awesome well um well the, the second question is is about death really Oh, great. Yeah. Um, what's worth dying for? Oh, geez, that's harder. And <coughs> as, as just like, I, I'm pretty sure I know that you'll say your children because you have children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that is... Would that be too superficial also? No, but, you know, it's the obligatory answer for anyone that has children. Um, Agreed. And, <clears throat> and then... If there isn't anything besides your children, does any cause hold enough weight or any weight in anymore? Have, has the pendulum swung so far that we don't care? However you want to interpret that. Swung so far for me personally or socially or culturally? Yes. Oh, okay, both. Yeah, yeah. Great. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, I think this is a hard question to get a handle on. Um, I think that I don't know if there are any ideas that are worth dying for. Like I know some people would say that there are, you know, things like freedom or 
you know, whatever <laughs> those ideas might be. But I don't, I don't know if <clears throat> um, Victor Hugo, his last novel, ninety three, mm-hmm. a lot of it is a is a basic critique of the level of commitment that people have to ideas that leads them to demonize other people and to harm other people. And so that led me to be really critical of or to evaluate my own tendency to elevate ideas to such an important level that, you know. And we know that um, our own government has often justified or legitimated going to wars with other countries because of these grand kind of ideas, you know, like freedom. Right. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of danger. Operation Freedom. Yeah. Isn't that what exactly. yeah. one of them was called? Exa- yeah, the, one of the Iraq wars that we've had. Yeah. yeah. Operation Iraq. Either the first freedom. or second one. Yeah. And there's well, a lot of a noble sad irony. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, but I, so, so this is the noble part of me. The noble part of me thinks that um, that people, aside from my children, should be worth dying for. So I think of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I am. So, okay, so this Lutheran pastor who was one of the f- relatively few Christians who stood up and opposed what Hitler was doing in Nazi Germany. Yeah. Because of not how it was affecting him, personally, or anyone in his family, but Jewish people. And there's something that is compelling to me about that kind of willingness to put one's life on the line for people who are vulnerable. And so I think about who those people are today. And I think about children who are being separated from their families and parents at our border and and put into camps. Um, Not dreamers, but people who are coming over the border from Latin America now. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, who are being put in these camps and around at least a dozen or so of these kids have died in these camps. I I was just watching the Hassan Minaj thing about that. I don't know if you're familiar with him or ever watched his show. Um, it's called the Patriot Patriot Act. Okay, no. Um, he, he did a whole expose on it. And, okay. And specifically, like, um, Guatemala, El Salvador, and, and uh, whatever, <laughs> Belize, like, people coming from those countries coming okay. over. Okay. Um, and, and there's supposedly going to be this law proposed that uh, it's illegal, illegal for them to get, um, why am I forgetting the term? What is the term called? Asylum. Asylum, or, thank yeah. you. It's illegal to get asylum because we're not the border. Yeah, it's, ridic- it's absurd. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> Insane. Yeah. And so the noble part of me thinks those children and those families who are some of the most vulnerable people in the world today, yeah. who have basically nothing, who are so um, threatened... Uh, and frightened that they're leaving their country to go to this new scary place that, where they don't know the language. And the noble part of me thinks that those people should be worth dying for. 
But, you know, I, I'm not really doing anything for them except for writing an article here or there, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that doesn't cost me anything. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to do. And so I think um, I'm faced with the depressing reality that I think I simply lack the courage, the kind of courage that a person like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a Martin Luther King Jr., uh, that a person like Malcolm X had, in terms of their willingness to put their life on the line for people who were vulnerable, oppressed, etc. Maybe. Um, I mean, there's, I also think that there's like a fine line between extreme radicalism and reality, too. Um, I have, I am, I know of a person, I was just talking guy he he runs an organization called the free burma rangers hmm. and um they originally were in in burma when i was oh wow and i knew about this okay because of the genocide in burma yeah and he was he was sneaking over and helping these people that wow were, that are just being slaughtered by the military and stuff because they're not burmese or right. not from myanmar um they're karen or now in Syria, <clears throat> fully armed, and, like, with his family, I mean, he has children and stuff that are with him, um, and they've been with him. In Syria? In Syria. They're, like, I, I was just told even, even more of the story than my dad, that um, he's, like, having his daughters, like, 18, 20-year-old daughter, they're, like, in getaway cars and stuff, like, waiting for the people, and, you know, and this guy, he's, M16 in hand and like ready to kill people and things for this so like he's taken he's taken his uh, his belief of putting his life on the line and taking out other people's in the process I yeah. guess for a cause to stand up for something and, yeah. and I think that's a I think he's crossed the line of the extremist radicalism um, I mean because I'm not saying that, that what he's doing maybe isn't worthy and just because these poor people in Syria are getting killed. Yeah, and so what for you makes what what's the line that he's crossed? Now he's or, willing to kill other other people in the process, not just save people. And right. he's putting his children in harm's way all the time. I mean, he he believes strongly that it is it's God's will, air quotes. Yeah. To be doing this, and it is because of God's provision that. He's alive, and um, I mean, which you know, I'm not saying that that's not true. I sure, but um, it almost—it's like just borderline reckless, you know. And and I think that there is a—I don't know. I mean, if he was sitting here right now, he would say, "And you live in this house, and you yeah. have like 
this tree with all these ornaments on it and stuff, what good is that doing anyone? And yeah. he's right. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not doing any good, but... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because he, like... All he is is courage. And so it's, it's, that's his second nature. So he just thinks, what's wrong with all of you that aren't doing this? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but that just seems crazy. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and it's hard to know, I think. You know, I think it's easier to look back on in history and look at a person like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a person like John Brown who right before the Civil War, this older white pastor who led an armed slave revolt because he was so convinced that slavery was an evil. And um, the slave revolt failed and he was caught and executed. And, you know, the, the, the fine line between being a hero, being truly heroic mm-hmm. for a righteous, just cause... And being, I don't know what term you use, crazy or something, or... Extremely Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I don't think it's easy to, to identify where that line is. And I'm also just really aware of my own, and I think our general tendency to kind of rationalize what can often be our own cowardice or inaction or failure to act. And so... Uh, so one of my heroes is a friend of mine, a woman named Sarah Lance, who started this uh, business called Sari Bari in Calcutta, mm-hmm. India, which is, she was part of an organization called Word Made Flesh, which is kind of like a Protestant version of Mother Teresa's Missionaries of sure. Charity. So around the world, they work with the poorest of the poor. Yeah. And Sarah started a business with women and girls who are um, in the prostitution red light brothel industry in Calcutta Mm -hmm. and trying to get them out of that and into a job where they um, sew and make uh, blankets and bags and purses and things that they sell so so that the economic incentive to return to prostitution is removed. And she's been doing this for 18, 19 years now. So in my mind, she's this kind of ultimate hero. Mm-hmm. And I also don't know about the line of when someone starts to use violence against others. There's a part of me that um, can be easily be really critical of that yeah. and abhor that me too. because... Where does that end? Right. Uh, and and there are other times where I wonder if if that's what's necessary to end the suffering of people, to end injustice. You know. Oh yeah. I, so that's I don't know. I don't. Th- I don't think th- these are kind of easy no, of things not. to. Yeah solve and yeah there was a Catholic priest um, I think his name was Camilo Torres Mm -hmm. who in the 60s or 70s became really involved with poor peasants in a Latin American country and he ended up 
actually taking up arms um, along with rebels against certain military wings of the government. And he's another figure where I think it becomes difficult to kind of precisely (laughs) know to, to what degree is what he's doing just and right. It makes me think of the movie Lean on Me. Have you seen that movie with Morgan Freeman? East Side High. I never saw the whole oh movie. No, is, am I missing something I you were, I crucial? You were a cinephile. Yeah, <laughs> but I tend to have good taste. I don't oh, know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, in the 80s, <laughs> yes. that movie was incredible. Okay. I, mean, I don't know if it holds up anymore, but the ideas behind it may not, you know. are awesome. Okay. And I bet it does. Morgan Freeman kills it in that movie. All right. Um, he often does. You, you, you should watch it. Okay. But what we're talking about is what happens. And it's based mm-hmm. on this real guy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, you know, it was, it was the real, uh, what was that movie that Michelle Pfeiffer did? Criminal Minds. D- or, Dangerous Minds. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it, you know, it's like the real version of that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so here's what's interesting. In pop culture, you have a lot of um, uh, texts like the TV show Dexter. Mm-hmm. Or, Which I've never actually watched. Oh, I've heard it's, it's worth seeing. It's very intense. Yeah, it is. Or the, uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo mm-hmm. book series that. and films. Yeah, oh, I read them all. Okay, and so they're exploring the question, you know, to what degree is the use of violence justified to end yeah. abuse? Not simply as retaliation. So this is our government. The use of something like capital punishment Mm -hmm. is not used to prevent future victims. No. It's It's just used to punish. Yeah, Yeah, it's entirely punitive. But Dexter, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, the movie Dogville, they're really interested in can violence be used justly to prevent future victims from being harmed? And that idea is really mm-hmm. appealing, interesting, to, compelling to me. Yeah. I think the other thing that's compelling is that in those shows, you also see the hero who's using violence to harm people who are rotten, terrible people. Mm-hmm. That, that that use of violence is also poisonous to themselves. Yeah. So there's no... It's not a win-win. Sure. Like the Breaking Bad idea, kind of. No. How so? No. Well, because, I mean, he starts off as this, like... He's trying to save his family. He has this kind of a debt, and he gets into this making money, and then it starts to take him slowly, and he becomes this... Oh yeah, thing, but his whole intent is really—he was—he was a good guy trying to just initially, initially, yeah, he takes over him. He's not trying to end abuse, sir. No, he's not. Yeah, he's. Well, I mean, he was trying to save his ass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Family. Yeah, and help his family. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, it might be a stretch. But Maybe. That's what I was, that's what I was <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, man, that's awesome stuff. Mm. Um. I, I don't want to end it, but let's let's go to the next okay. question. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll jump off into some other tangent on this one. Um, where does your inspiration come from? Wow. 
I think, you know, I think a lot of what I talked about in the last question would be the answer in terms of there are people, historical people, that I find very captivating, compelling. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, Jr., Malcolm X, Mother Teresa, Bonhoeffer, Gandhi? Dorothy Day. Is he not on the list? Gandhi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know as much about Gandhi. Oh, okay. Um, uh, Tolstoy. Um, Tolstoy? Yeah. He was fiercely, fiercely critical of Russia's military and their use of capital punishment because of his reading of the Sermon on the Mount in I Matthew 5 through 7. I didn't remember hearing about that. And he wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You. Yeah, in, did I just hear about this? In the 1890s. And Gandhi was given that book by a, a Quaker who was always trying to convert Gandhi to Christianity, never yeah. successful. And Gandhi said that that book by Tolstoy... But Gandhi, and, Gandhi read... I've, I, I just was talking, well, actually, to a priest okay. about this. Okay. That Gandhi said on a daily basis he would read the Sermon of the Mount and something from the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Yes, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was very similar. And, okay. And, and he said that that, like, moved him so much to try to live his life the way that he did. Yeah, so Gandhi is fascinating for a lot of reasons, but he was really intrigued with Christianity. Yeah. And when he was in South Africa working as a lawyer, um, defending black South Africans against persecution, he was in an Anglican church because he was wanting to learn more about Christianity. And while the church service was beginning, an usher comes up to Gandhi, taps him on the shoulder, and says, what are you doing in here? We don't let colored people in here. Leave. So Gandhi says he got up, he walked out, and he never looked back at Christianity. And then later when he became famous for what he did in India, mm-hmm. for leading this you know, successful nonviolent revolution, he was often asked to speak at churches. And when he did so, he would often say, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They, Amen, they, are, they are so unlike your Christ. And so he had this really um, uh, strong attraction to Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Sermon on the Mount's proposal that you could resist evil actively, but not violently. And so this becomes, for him, a kind of crucial model. And that, uh, that's a model that Martin Luther King Jr. picks up on from the Sermon on the Mount and from Gandhi. But a lot of that Gandhi gets from the Sermon on the Mount and from Tolstoy. I, I don't know so much about the influence of the Bhagavad Gita for Gandhi. Mm. Um, but so a lot of these people who were willing to endure a personal cost because they want to alleviate suffering, basically, and end injustice. Um, so that's inspiring to me. I, I get really inspired by stories, mm-hmm. both um, historical and fictional. So lit- literature, Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo, um, was really instrumental for me in terms of thinking about the ways that 
society can structure contexts <coughs> in which people often have to make choices to survive that are inhumane and that we often easily judge those people as being immoral, let's say if they enter prostitution or if they steal, yeah. um, without recognizing that it's society's fault for creating an environment in which people who are desperately poor have to become criminals to survive. So there's a way in which a, a lot of things I've read, um, Malcolm X's autobiography, have enhanced my empathy for people who are very much unlike me. Uh, Mel White, uh, his autobiography called Stranger at the Gate to be Gay and Christian in America, he was a ghostwriter for a lot of prominent figures in the moral majority of the religious right in the 1980s, okay. like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Bill Graham. Uh, and Mel White was gay, but, but he was closeted because he was convinced it was a sin. Mm -hmm. And his autobiography describes his journey of ultimately kind of reconciling his sexual orientation, which he had tried to change through all kinds of crazy things, including electroshock therapy. Um, being able to accept his orientation as a gift from God and reconcile it with his faith commitment. Um, so stories have done a lot for me in terms of, and there's actually been a lot of some research done on this, the way in which fiction can actually enhance people's empathy for people of other races, ethnicities, national backgrounds, sexual orientations, etc. Sure. So there's this line in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. where the dad, Atticus Finch, says to his daughter, Scout, he talks about the importance of being able to put ourselves into the shoes of someone else mm -hmm. and, and walk in those shoes and to kind of inhabit uh, their experience. Yeah. And I think that's so difficult for a lot of us to do. And I... You know, I wonder how much of the current polarization within our own cultural context in America, <clears throat> politically, socially, mm -hmm. how much of the anti-immigrant rhetoric is based on the basic inability of people to imagine themselves in the shoes and in the lives of people who are so different from them, mm. you know? Because I think if people could do that, it seems like it would be a lot more difficult to demonize them, to vilify them, to be so frightened of them. And so I, I, I think that um, I really like the potential that stories and that fiction has to enlighten, enlighten and, and help us inhabit that space of the other. Yeah. You know? Okay, well, um, do you feel you're in control of your life, and what holds you down? Do I feel like I'm in control of my life? <clears throat> I added the feel, I, but yeah, sure. 
You add, you didn't you come up with the whole question? Well, I, I don't think I said feel initially. I think I oh, just that's said, okay. uh, do, you, do you argue with me? Well, I don't know. I didn't it's all right. Read, I didn't don't, no worries. Oh, you're, you're fine. You're, you're totally good. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't know because I feel torn between, on the one hand, I think, I feel like there are a lot of choices that I can make that determine a lot of the things that happen in my life. Yeah. So I can um, look at my recent divorce, for example, mm-hmm. and identify certain choices I made along the way in the marriage that I regret and wish I could go back and do differently. And that if I could go back and do this differently, part of me wonders, would, would that have been enough to save the marriage? Right. Um, that's, I mean, that's the what-if game that everybody plays, though. Sh- sure, but I, I, I think it's important to not minimize the, the power that we have in our choices, because I do think a lot of times people can blame you know, anything else outside of them oh, yeah. for what, you know, for their life. Now, on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of things outside of my control that I don't, that I either have no control over or just a tiny bit of control. <clears throat> and so that's the, the tension. Um, so you I, don't, you're, you don't believe in predestination or any of those sort of things? I I think if there if anything is predestined I think that whatever might be predestined is inextricably connected to and tied up with choices that we make. So I I don't uh, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, well, exactly. how, can we, how can we know for sure? Well, uh, but I mean, but I'm, I'm not saying that I do. I just want to yeah, yeah, yeah. throw a little wrench in there. Yeah, yeah, sure. I appreciate the wrench. Um, uh, I'm intrigued. I, be, I believe 100% in what you're saying. That yeah. I know that if I would have made different choices along the line in my life, my life would be significantly different. Yeah, right. However, y- yeah, yeah. that didn't happen. You didn't, yeah, yeah. And here I am. Yeah, um, and I I love that you that you specifically put emphasis on the word power in our choices because I know that people don't recognize that. Yes. Um, yeah. And and it is very like we as humans have so much power in what we do that well, we don't realize, and we often sell ourselves short. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Someone's I, I don't I don't know if it was Eric Fromm. Someone said that a lot of people fail because they don't realize the moments in their life. They fail. They fail because they don't realize moments in their life when they have a choice to make. Mm. So they're kind of oblivious to their when they're actually making a choice for something. Okay. Um, 
I'm really intrigued with this concept of a kind of a multiverse. And it, <clears throat> there's a, a British play called Constellations that's just about two characters, a man and a woman, they fall in love. And the play explores the multiverses that appear based on any small choice that one of the people in this couple in the relationship makes because every choice leads to a different like tangential universe and so the play explores all these future possible outcomes that could have arisen for this one couple based on choices that they make the butterfly effect yes except it 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 proposes that all those possible universes are occurring simultaneously so that when you and I are talking, any choice one of us makes leads to a branching off into a new trajectory, and that branching off that is coexisting at the same time that that we've made another yeah yeah that we make another choice. So you have the coexistence of multiple trajectories or streams, yeah. and and whether these streams can interface or interlace with each other is who knows but wow. that idea is really intriguing to me you know that makes me and think of like the well just <clears throat> just thinking about time in a different way mm-hmm. um, yeah and it, it reminds me of in slaughterhouse five when the the travel mandorians how they're the way that they view time do you remember that no i don't so, there. I didn't. I didn't fully appreciate that novel oh, enough. Yeah. You might want to read it. I, yeah. The the Trafalgarians see time as one whole chunk, so that they see everything that has happened all at once. And I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but the way that because I I guess I kind of visualize things. But what you're saying with the multiverse, so, so like each path is going around, and this is like a it's almost like a spider graph of things that are going out and around. Yes, yeah. And, and it made me think of the Trafalmadorians because they don't see time as moments. They see all of the time at once. Ah, okay. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I was just visualizing like how all of these other things going on. I was thinking like a spiral graph. Yeah. Or like a, I don't know what it would look like, but if, if like that timeline was going around and, you know, it's... Every timeline was going off in its own direction, but from the right. same point. Right. Yeah, I, I think in general, <laughs> our the the most common understanding of time that we have is extremely narrow, limited, restricted. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really intrigued with alternative views about time, like in the film Run Lola Run, mm-hmm. where time is not linear but it's cyclical, and people are constantly going back in time. And so the idea is that this um, conversation we're having now, mm-hmm. that we've already had this conversation multiple times before, and we what we're happening now. What's happening now is that we're revisiting. We keep coming back, and in run or run, the idea is that you keep coming back to learn something new so that you can get it right this time. Yeah. Um. So yeah, interstellar. But what do you think about that though? Like really? Do you? I don't know. You just think it's oh this is a this is a very cool idea or this is actual actually a possibility of I don't know reality. yeah I mean my I think my t- t- 
my tendency is to think that maybe time is more linear, but how much of my belief in that is because I've been socialized into that view for, yeah, since I've been born, and not really, you know, presented with alternative views of time. Have you, have you heard about, like, the, there's these YouTube videos about this, this guy that supposedly worked at Area 51? Um, uh, this is already sounding sketchy. Just so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, because what you just said is not sketchy. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, granted. Here's what he, here's, here's what he says. He says that all of these, you know, the, the common alien figures that we see, you know, like the elongated head with the big eyes, and, you know, we call them the grays or the whites. There's, like, different, but they all kind of look the same. He claims that he has worked and talked with these aliens. <laughs> okay, sorry. And, and they're all humans from the future. And that they have, depending on which form they are, that is the way that they have evolved into this being hmm. in certain times. Hmm. And they are trying to come back to see what the heck they did to get to where they are. Huh, huh. And... I don't know. I mean, I was thinking more like in time of the grand scheme of humanity time. Yeah. But that totally makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Hmm-hmm. Yeah. Fox Mulder would uh, yeah. need to be brought in. So, I mean, some... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, that makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to think about um, God um, existing like outside of our space-time continuum. You used to think that? You don't think that anymore? It, it, well, it was just an idea that I often thought... Of. It was an idea I often thought about. I, I, I don't think about it as, as often anymore. I think that people but it, believe in God, that is the common belief. That they believe that God is beyond the, the time-space continuum. But, so, but here's what was really compelling to me about that. Mm-hmm. Is that if God is outside <clears throat> space and time, then God can kind of enter time at any moment. Yeah. Right? And if that's true, then people could pray for things in the past because for God, that's like God's present. Because all along the time continuum is God's present since God can enter any moment because God's not bound by that time. So so praying for something in the past is no different than praying for something in the present or isn't future. That, isn't that what a lot and, of religions do when they baptize the dead or whatever? They pr- they pray for their souls of the. Yeah, but I think it's the. Died. Oh, maybe I don't I don't know enough about that particular approach. But I don't know. That is a very interesting thought. Yeah, because then if we if you could pray for something in the past. And what if that thing could be changed or altered? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that, that, was, that was a lot of empty space. That's okay. Um, well, I was just thinking. Yeah, but wouldn't? But that that just doesn't that put limitations on God? Doesn't that doesn't that make God admit <clears throat> fault? Well, why can't God have limitations? Right. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see a problem with God having limitations. Hmm. Well, 
anyway. Um, what, what, is, what does this have to do with you being in control of your life? <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, I, I mean, I do think a lot of uh, our ideas about if we think we're in control might be illusory. Okay. You know, like, I think we operate under heavy illusions a lot of times about the degree to which we have control also. No, notwithstanding our power of choice and things like that. And I also wonder about how the degree to which a person's privilege mm-hmm. in, a, in their society grants them a greater feeling of having control oh, yeah. over their life. So I, as someone who has a kind of a significant amount of privilege... Um, given my education, race, gender, sexual orientation, etc., mm-hmm. um, I can sometimes feel like there aren't a lot of forces that are impinging upon me yeah. or controlling me. Yeah. And so it, it could be interesting the ways in which one's sense of control um, increases or decreases based on the amount of power or privilege one has. You know? I, I'm sure that that is very true. I mean, isn't that what Slumdog Millionaire was about? I mean, it, it, it was kind of like, at, at its like foundation, that's kind of what it was about. Because this, it was this impossible story of a person coming out of ab, you know, abject poverty and working his way up, which which we believe in what we see to be totally this person should have no control of anything ever but he makes it by happenstance to a certain um, level of luck or you know prestige I guess yeah and that film also is really keenly interested in the role that destiny or fate played in his success in getting to that lottery show and succeeding as well as he did on the show yeah okay sure yeah so maybe that doesn't have really have to do with control but I but I do think that it it, the reason that that movie is like powerful is because he was in such a low position right where you would think it's completely out of control yeah and he works his way up somehow in a miraculous kind of way. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, it's hard not to bring up our current president, uh, you know, but like someone, I, there's no way that, I mean, he, he believes, I don't know if he believes this, it, it seems that he believes that he's untouchable, that he's above laws and rules and... Yeah. He can just do whatever, um, because he truly believes that he he's in control of. I, I mean, I know it's a blanket statement, but he it seems like he thinks he's in control of everything. Right. And um, well, and that his portrayal is that he has like this ultimate control because he I mean, he he was ultimately in a privileged position his whole life. Yes. So. Um, 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. U- ultimate privilege. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think you were exactly correct about um, privilege and status and making control seem so much more tangible. You know? Yeah, yeah. Someone that lives in a, a slum in Thailand. Like, I, I mean, I've, I've known people personally that I don't think that they felt like they had control of their life at all. It was all just luck of the draw. Well, and, you know, or what's going to happen that day? Who knows? Right. They have no control. And 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 I think that helps <clears throat> people understand the significant lack of sense of kind of self-agency that cultural conditions and environment can produce. Totally. And it's heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That was an awesome answer. I don't even know where or how we got there. Um, I don't either. We're not in control. No. What have you done that is truly wrong? Oh, man. And can something be truly wrong? It seems like, I mean, you've, and I don't know where you stand with your religious views at all, but, it, I mean, you've, you work in a, a religious community. And well, well a religious studies department. Okay, you work in religious studies department. At a Catholic college. Catholic Jesuit University. Yeah, yeah it's like, I mean, you're, you're surrounded by religion. And you've, in, been, you've been bringing up in yeah, yeah. religious stuff. But I, I, I'm just saying, I personally have no idea where you stand as far as religion goes. Yeah. I feel like that I've heard you say things at the bar sometimes. It's like, this guy might be an atheist. I don't know. What? <laughs> Why? How come? I don't know. Like what? I, do you remember? I, I don't remember specifically. I remember hmm. having a conversation with Tracy, though. I remember you talking to her, and I was just like, oh, man. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think Matt believes anything. What? <laughs> what? what? You're kidding. I wish I knew the specific situation. Yeah, it would be just, helpful, I, rather I, than throwing out be. scandalous accusations yeah. without any... Basis. I'm just or factor. I'm narrative. saying all of this to say that <laughs> I just have no idea where you stand in in these Matters. realms. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me either way. Um, but I think that this question, obviously, it it. <laughs> I mean, your answer could be very much formulated by a religious belief. It could be. It doesn't have to be. Right. And, um, and, and that's why I, I, I like the, the second part of it. Can something be truly wrong? Because who knows? What, I don't know what people think. Um, and, I, and I definitely think that moral scales are, are based on a religious perspective most of the time. Often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do just want to say this Mielza <laughs> beer it, by Georgetown mm-hmm. is fantastic. <laughs> It's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, actually, maybe Georgetown will sponsor me Maybe, sometime. yeah. <laughs> and I just want to say for the record, I don't work for 
or officially represent in any capacity Georgetown Brewery. But neither do I. Yeah, but you know, I the Stone Scorpion Bowl IPA was good, but <laughs> the Miauza for uh, IPA double IPA has it takes it to a whole new level. You got that right. Yeah, I mean that it's beer's incredible. It's fantastic. Yeah. Why am I not drinking this more when I'm at Manado Tap House? Because you can't keep it on. Ah, is it currently on now? No. What? <laughs> Come on. I, okay. I mean, it was. See? It was last week. I have no control. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, it's a delicious beer, and they've just we just started <clears throat> canning it. Oh. Yeah. Can one procure such beer at a place like Huckleberries? One hundred percent. Our super one. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right. So, <laughs> apology for that um, detour. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm not an atheist. <laughs> okay. Although... No, I... Clear, clearly, you're not okay. an atheist the way that you were just okay. talking. Yeah. Just, <laughs> but, I, at one point, I was like, oh, man, I, I, I thought Matt was way different than... But I don't no, know. Maybe you're yeah, not. I'm not an atheist. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do sometimes... resonate with views about God that a lot of Christians would reject, such as... You and me both, bro. Okay, yeah. Such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea that God is weak and powerless in the world. And that that's actually the way that God helps people is by being weak and powerless. So that's a radically different idea than the vast majority of Christians would subscribe to. I mean, doesn't or she say or she specifically that, or isn't it biblical that when you're helping the poor and the weak and the elderly, you're helping me? Yes, and so in that way, Jesus, in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, said, he, he identifies as someone who's weak, and powerless, and marginalized. Mm -hmm. And I do think, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud argued that the primary reason why people believe in God is to have a fatherly figure that is so powerful that, that God is able to do for them what their dad did for them when they were an infant child, which is take care, provide, you know, give love, care, compassion, nurture, protection. In a psychoanalytical way, I can, I, I, I can kind of see that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but, so what's interesting to me is that, you know, Bonhoeffer's idea of God as weak and powerless is a completely, yeah. you know, it, <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, so what have I done that's wrong? <laughs> this is the confessional. Confessional part. You don't have to. No, no. You, you, I don't want you to incriminate yourself. No, I, I can. Um, I, I do feel like there are things that are wrong. I tend to not think of myself as a black and white, either or binary, dualistic thinker. But I, I tend to think that the most wrong thing that can be done is to dehumanize a person or for someone in power to harm or hurt or cause agony or pain or suffering to someone else. So, um... Why did you give 
why did it have to be a person in power? Well, I, I guess I was thinking of a person in power doing that to someone with a lesser power. Okay. So... So you don't think it's wrong if a serf is attacking his... I, I think it's more complicated. The feudal, feudal lord. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's more complicated. So in, um, in the biblical book of Exodus, um, when Moses is an adult, the first thing he does is uh, he sees a, sla- a slave being beaten by a slave master. Yeah. And Moses attacks and kills the slave master. And there's no sense in the book of Exodus that that's wrong or inappropriate. And But what you're saying is that it is wrong because he was a person of power and authority over that slave master. Well, but he's, at, he's defending the slave who's being he's beaten. He's slave because he was Hebrew and he himself was a Hebrew. That's one possible reading of it. But it's also possible that he's defending that slave because the slave was weaker, had less power, or, or a combination of both. Or, um, I, 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 do, I do think there is a, a difference between, let's say, a slave rising up and using violence against a slave owner and a slave owner using violence against the slave, I don't think those acts can be equated morally or ethically. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think that um, <clears throat> there are a couple incidents from my childhood where I remember... Um, hurting someone else. So when I was in fourth or fifth grade at school, there, there was a kid who was kind of um, like an outcast kid. He was picked on. And mm-hmm. and I remember one day that he was doing something that was bugging me, bothering me, irritating, annoying me. I don't even remember what it was, but I ended up hitting him in the stomach. And... I, I still carry shame about that. I remember having a fight um, once with my bro- younger brother when I was maybe 12 or so, and I, I remember kneeing him in the back, and I hurt him. And, uh, like, I still have shame over that. And I think... I have a very, it, a very similar story. Huh. It's actually a combination of both of those stories. Huh. Um, and... And I, if I ever, I mean, I, I, I remember this girl. I know, I like, I know where she lived when she grew up. I, I mean, if I ever see her again, I 100% will apologize for her for what I did. Because mm. I, he was, she wasn't even annoying me. It was mm. for no reason at all. Mm. And I just hurt her huh. for no reason. It was just pure evil. Mm. <clears throat> I, I remember another time I was in junior high so it would have either been in 6th, 7th or 8th grade and I was in a class and as part of the assignment for the class we had to pick a debate topic 
get in front of the class and present a particular point of view in the debate. And I forget, I don't remember if the debate topic was assigned to us by the teacher or if we chose it ourselves. And it bothers me that I can't remember because what I ended up debating was a kind of um, pro-slave owner, pro-Confederate point of view wow. dur during the Civil War in, in terms of defending um, the institution of slavery. And I finish my, I don't know, three to five minute spiel and I'm walking back to my desk and there's a girl sitting right next to me who is a black student and I sit down next to her and I still can't um, like get over the sense of guilt and shame that I felt when I looked in her eyes. I hope so. Jeez. And I, and I don't know what in me at that time allowed me to say what I did in front of the whole class, defending that point of view. <clears throat> Um, I was just in a conversation today about, uh, um, have you heard about this, the 1916 or the 1619? 1619. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. The New York Times yeah. did a whole journalistic yeah. issue on it. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation about it today. Because I, I believe that there is a systemic racism in the United States. Sure. Um, and the person I was talking to does not believe that. And, and thinks that, that this 1619, um, I don't know what, what do you call it, a movement or something? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think just like trying to highlight the historical long-term like consequence of enslaving an entire group of people for hundreds of years. Yeah, um, well, I, I, he, he was, he was saying this was, uh, this has to do with um, maybe Such a pen, such a strong left pendulum swing that this is is like a bucking of the system as of, as a whole, like even to the point of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in what he was saying is saying, no 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 no, the um, it's your dream of no races and everybody being together as one that should not be there needs to be retribution for this and um, and it's a and it, and it could be detrimental because of this what, what do you mean retribution <clears throat> like okay. white man needs to pay essentially okay is like the underlying message and I don't I don't I don't know enough about it 
or, or that was this person's perception of the sixteen nineteen yeah. project. Okay, and and I, I think it's a very interesting perspective. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I honestly have no idea what what the agenda is behind it. And obviously, we nobody knows. Really. Yeah, but it could be it could be just the someone uh, emotionalism to a an extreme um what do you mean well like that that there really isn't a systemic racism it's just that um different people in different situations um have different levels of merit I guess mm, mm. I don't know yeah. I mean, uh, but I just find it interesting that that I, w- I was just talking about this, mm. and um, I really need to I need to read it and mm. And, mm. And, and know more about it. But mm-hmm. um, <coughs> I, I just thought maybe because uh, I was talking about that today that it it, it could you know piggyback on what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Um, the author James Baldwin, mm-hmm. black author, mm-hmm. um, he argued that part of the fundamental illness in American society was that we were so committed to a vision of the United States as being pure and good mm-hmm. that we were completely unable or incapable of facing or looking at our sins or evils or shortcomings that and that in order for us to become healthy as a society or culture yeah we had to abandon our zealous devotion to this concept that we're completely good because that prevents us from acknowledging and facing how ugly we've been. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to me that in Nazi Germany, the, the country of Germany decided to pay reparations to descendants of Holocaust victims and Holocaust survivors because they recognized that it's such a gross injustice. Mm-hmm. And our own government in the United States did the same thing for victims of the Japanese internment during World War II. Mm-hmm. So there is, it seems that there's something inconsistent with our, what appears to be complete refusal to do anything similar for the descendants of victims of hundreds and hundreds of years of an institution that was purely evil. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder what the deal is. Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I, I wondered just how difficult it is for us to face how ugly we've been. Because yeah. if we're to face that, what does that mean about us? Right. And it seems to mean that it 
disrupts um, or dis destroys the vision that so many of us have of our nation as an upright, good, noble, heroic nation. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to believe that when its foundations are blood and death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a perfect transition into the next question. That was my intention. I know. I, I could tell. <laughs> and, and it just made me think, oh, he just wants to go right into it. So what is your opinion on the natural hierarchical order in reference to humanity? What does that mean? <clears throat> so I made, it, I'm, I made this question relatively vague. Yeah. <laughs> or confusing? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's confusing. Okay. Um, the natural hierarchy in humanity, whether it be gender specific, race, whatever, like, do you, what is your opinion about hierarchical order with humans? Oh, okay. And I, I mean, and I, and I wanted it to be vague like okay. that because there are so many different ways that you could think about this. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about it right now in one sense. <clears throat> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think my basic view is that people who have more power and, and those people who have more power are people who are extremely wealthy. They're often people in our cultural context who are men, who are white, who are straight, That, that that power that they have can be wielded consciously or not in ways that can help or hurt people with less power. And I think part of our growing, ideally, part of our growing, increasing consciousness or awareness mm -hmm. is becoming aware of that fact so that people like you and I who have more power mm -hmm. can seek to utilize it or think about how we might be able to use it in ways that benefit people who have less power than we do. Yeah. In a sense, that's why I'm doing this podcast. Really? Say more. I mean, I, I, I truly believe that because I'm in a, in a situation where, I mean, the demographic that I'm uh, bringing in and interviewing is, is pretty eclectic from the bar. Yeah. And, but, but because of its geographic <laughs> yeah. location, right. I have a very interesting variety of viewpoints huh, huh. Um, and I think well educated and uh, in lots of cases open minded or um, you know just willing to hear other people's opinions kind of views yeah um, so so I, I believe that by me 
information that could be helpful for other people in some other place so that here you know listening to this could be could be really powerful and who knows it might make a change mm-hmm. I mean that's essentially what I what I I feel that I I want to do with my life is mm. like, I mean I'm yeah you know i want to make change yeah yeah and um and and i definitely think this is one medium of doing it you know Uh uh-huh i don't know again it might be a bit of a stretch but no no i I think i mean i find myself in our current political climate becoming so depressed and disillusioned Mm mm-hmm with the likelihood that there will be significant awareness, um, mm. I- increasing uh, compassion or empathy from a lot of people in our society. And I think one of my unhealthy tendencies is to respond to that by almost kind of giving up mm. or withdrawing, disengaging myself. Yeah. And I know that's not helpful, but sometimes the barriers can seem kind of insurmountable to trying to elicit the kind of um, enhanced... Uh, awareness or appreciation or empathy or compassion or connection to people who are either more unlike us or people who are actually really suffering or in pain or needy. And I don't know how that's going to be accomplished. Like, it's really easy for me to kind of have a despair about that. Um, Well, that's one way of looking at it. I, I mean, don't do you think that possibly the way that things are is a catalyst for change because of the obvious atrocity or uh, I, whatever whatever you want to call it? Don't you think that don't you think that that is maybe then I the eye opener? Maybe that is the thing that is gonna. It's like. Oh my gosh, look at what our society has brought us to. Look at this particular situation. We look. have to do something because we're spiraling downward. Here's, he, he, here's what I, I can't, can't get around. Um, the, the people who are kind of diehard supporters mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. Do you think there's diehard the, supporters or they're just like, he's disrupting everything, let's go with it. I don't know. But here's what I do know, is that when Trump um, mocked and belittled uh, a a journalist with physical disabilities, that wasn't enough to cause people to say, cause his support, his ardent supporters to say, this is a line that can't be crossed. You know, when he said with a gleeful kind of joy and delight that he could grab women 
by the pussy. And that that wasn't enough to cause him to be shunned or ostracized or condemned. And he just recently basically mocked and belittled the 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, who's spending her life trying to help the rest of us realize that our climate is in peril Mm -hmm. because of our own greed and apathy. And so... that his supporters don't seem able to be swayed to shift their allegiance away from him, regardless of the kinds of... Egregious things that he does. Yes. That makes it, it really hard for me to maintain a kind of hope that those people can be reached or... Or connected to. So, I don't don't know. But, but, I (laughs) applaud, you know, your effort, which I think is noble to try to enlarge our, or speak to, you know, people's perspectives in a way that might and enhance their view, mm-hmm. their perspective, yeah, hopefully their compassion. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. All right. <laughs> last, Take it home. The last question. <laughs> yeah. What is your theme song? I don't have a theme song. Um, uh, you know, I, don't, I don't have a theme song. I don't, is that bad? Not I, at all. I, I don't, I don't so, have a theme song. Okay. okay. Yeah, I don't so, have one either. I, I, I just thought that it might be fun and playful. It's a great question. Yeah. I, um, so one of my newer... I identify with different songs. I do too. On a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I, I, I really like The National, and they have a song called Fake Empire, mm-hmm. and they have a line in that song that says, um, Half Awake... I'm half awake in a fake empire. And I think that speaks to me about a lot of the... Um, That's doing, cur- for, doing it for you right now. Current kind of disposition that a lot of people might find themselves in. Um, a lot of people hate, viscerally, with a passion, the song, um, Do They Know It's Christmas Time? Do you know oh, that song? John Lennon song? No, 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 no. It was, uh, it was after We Are the World... But it was in that same vein. Oh gosh! But so Bono was a part of it. How has the? Well, did, do they know it's Christmas time? Do, I I can't say I'm a terrible singer. Right? I can't say. I, I know. But do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 100%. So it's about yeah people suffering in Africa from hunger, starvation. I do actually kind okay. of hate that song. You do. Okay, so I like it. I like it a lot, and I understand the reasons why. It has positions of like yes, religious views. Yes. And cultural <laughs> hegemony, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But oh, yeah. so, um, I was a lot younger when that song came out, and yeah. at that time when it came out, I think it really appealed to a lot of the um, lofty, albeit naive, maybe <laughs> you know, visions that I had for 
I don't know, you know, helping people even in a maybe paternalistic manner. Um, I, I, it is, I, it, it has, it has failing and I, I, I understand I, what is happening with yes. this process of singing this song. Notwithstanding its uh, and, and potential the song, the deficiencies. Song is, it, it's like, you know. It's catchy. It's yeah. Yeah. Orally, yeah, right? Pleasing. Yeah, and and I like Bono and you too a lot. Yeah. But, totally. So no, I also I get this is not a song, but um, I, I'm really moved by Mozart's Requiem, and I used to when I used to work on writing that was um, the piece of music that I would find myself listening to most often. Because there was something about its uh, depth, intensity, profundity, I don't know. that Dissonance? Dissonance? Yeah. How so? No. I don't know. I mean, I don't feel like it's uplifting and joyous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I've been working on writing a piece on the movie Pan's Labyrinth, and there's a piece of music in that movie um, that, that's a, a lullaby instrumental piece no words mm-hmm. that uh, that's a little a lovely piece of music um, I really like the music to um, also instrumental <laughs> no lyrics um, the theme song to uh, Westworld that's mm-hmm. by the same uh, composer who did the theme song to Game of Thrones yeah yeah I watched okay I watched like the first two episodes of Westworld okay um Growing up, when, I, when later in high school, U2 was my favorite band, and I think I was really, among a lot of other things uh, that I found appealing about them, was a kind of wedding of um, political activism and spiritual sensitivity. 100%. Um, I'm that, with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, that, that I found really moving. So a lot of their songs... Um, speak to me really in a powerful way. Back then, I don't know about their stuff now. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sunday Blake Sundays. And, I mean, well, gosh, so many, so many of their older songs are just amazing. Yeah. No, no, they move me, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of Bob Dylan's stuff um, speaks to me. You know, he wrote a song about Reuben... Car- Hurricane Carter, the yeah. boxer who is oh, yeah. imprisoned for, it's like it's like a six and a half, seven minute song, but it's incredible it's, song. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I, I love like, I just want passion. Yes. Yeah. It speaks to me. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This was very good. Yeah.